We are um, back in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands. The ushers are coming through, and we'll give you one to look at. If you need, to, need one or don't own one, you're welcome to take that as well. Um, this is going to happen quite a bit in, in Matthew, and this is one of those, um, one of those days that I um, get to enjoy the, the, to do whatever the Bible tells me to do, and that is hit a, a, bit, of, a bit of text that, that isn't a very popular bit of text, and a, and a text that, that actually brings with it a stigma. And so what we're going to do today is, is I found that, that most scriptures, when, they, when you're teaching, they, they, they tell you to, to either prove a text or to explain a text or to apply a text. And this is one of those texts that maybe we're going to try and do a little bit of all three, which is probably why we're not going to cover it incredibly well. Um, but if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew 8, uh, the very end of Matthew 8, chapter, uh, verse 28, before we dive in, I'm actually going to pray one more time and then we'll dig in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the difficulty that it brings at times. God, may none of us be uh, arrogant or prideful in what we do know, um, but humble in, in the fact that we know so little in comparison to you. And so, Father, I pray that as we teach through um, a, a subject that is inevitably going to cause some to stumble, some to struggle, some to, to, um, to wrestle, God, I pray that you would just remind us that your, your word does not fall void. Um, that your word is, is a two-edged sword. And so I pray where we, we need to be cut, God, cut. Um, where we need to be pruned, God, prune. And where we need to be encouraged, God, would you just do that. And so we pray we do all that um, by the work of your Holy Spirit um, through uh, your Son, Jesus Christ. pray all this in his name. Amen. So this text is, 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 is a text that the title, I think, in the book, in, if you have one of these, is uh, Jesus... Uh, Jesus heals two men with demons. And so um, before we get in there, I wanted to tell you, uh, talk a little bit about that because I feel like there's a stigma amongst the church when it comes to demons or, or Satan and, and all these things. And, and essentially the stigma is this, is that we swing the pendulum to one way or the other. We have, we have and I would say that probably predominantly most of us in here would swing the pendulum to the side of, I don't get it, I'm not comfortable with it, I'm not sure I understand it, and therefore I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. And we just kind of engage in life as if it's not really there. We know that something's going on and we can kind of feel in us this whole stigma of good and evil and we watch movies where we like good winning and, and evil not and, and we can, we can kind of feel that there's more out there. But we, we, for predominantly when it comes to the Bible and these things, we just kind of read this and go, oh, that's neat. Thanks for doing that, Jesus. See you later. Move on and kind of come from there. And then the other side of the pendulum is, is, is we get so geeked out by this that we spend every waking moment studying angels and demons and, and all the times and trying to, to, to figure out deliverance ministries. And we make the point this. And we get so far over here that we forget that we're actually called to live um, from all the other pages in the Bible and be obedient to that. And so I think the, the two stigmas, the two pendulums, although there's probably more and, there, and you guys are all, a room this size, everyone's all over the board. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the fact that... Um, the, the demons are real. The Bible teaches, uh, we see all over that Satan was a fallen angel. He took a third of the angels with him. And in, of them now, they have Rome of this earth. And, and not to, to create fear in all of you, like we have texts that we're going to get to where Jesus is, is more than a conqueror to everything on this earth. But um, um, I think until you have some kind of personal experience with it, you don't really um, put a lot of weight into it. And for me, it was when I was 21 years old. Uh, I was in Ensenada, Mexico. And uh, we were there uh, doing a youth trip missions thing kind of thing. And I was about two years, three years old in the faith, like pretty young and understanding it. And I remember there was this boy, David, and he was an awesome, awesome kid. Like I loved him. He was a freshman. He was super, just a servant heart, just a gentle guy, just amazing. And 
we were at one point in our little housing area, and I'm like, where's David? He's like, oh, he's in the bathroom. And I just, like, well, he's been in there for a while. I'm just assuming that he got attacked by the tacos that normally happen in Mexico, and that's why he was in the bathroom for so long. And so I, so I go in there. I'm like, hey, knock on the door. I'm like, David, you, you okay, buddy? Like, is everything going on good or, you know, not going on good? Or, I mean, are you exiting or what, whatever? I'm trying not to talk about poop in front of all you guys. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, I'm like, are you okay? What's going on? You know, how, how's everything going? Like, what's going on in here? And and he uh, doesn't say anything, doesn't say anything. And David, and I start knocking. Then I start getting a little nervous, like, is, is something happened to him? Like, is he, is he really sick? What's going on? And so, I, so I, um, I pop the door open, and I walk in, and I, I, I look, and I see David breathing really, really fastly, conquered up in the corner. I can still visually memorize it, like, between the wall and the toilet, and just cold sweating, and just shaking. And he's like, go away, go away, go away. I don't want you to see me. Go away, go away. And just starts panicking. And this is, I mean, David was gentle, quiet. That was him. And I was like, what is this? This doesn't make sense. I'm like, are you sick? He's like, no, I don't know what's wrong with me. Just leave me alone. And so I did what a really ignorant 22-year-old would do is I don't know. This doesn't make sense. And so I just started praying. And I didn't get up and be like, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed and have this perfect worded out prayer that like exercise and see this demon come flying out. No. Instead, what I did was essentially like, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense. But I know, I know who Jesus is and I know that he is stronger than whatever this is. And so I prayed over him. I rebuked in the name of Jesus and instantly... He stopped shaking, his breathing slowed down, and he calmed. And I'm like, okay, that does not make sense. I don't understand it, and I'm uncomfortable with it, and so let's just go on, David. Let's have fun. And after that, David was fine, and, and nothing else happened. But that was really early on in my faith. And when you experience something like that, you can't really put a name on it. You can't really, like, understand it completely. And really, I'll be honest, for me, most of the time, it was just like, I'm just going to remember that story and stay away from Ensenada, Mexico, and call it good, and, and move on. But what, what happened about this text and what's interesting about this text is that, is that Matthew's been, been laying out Jesus as king. And we've been, we've been looking at this whole, this whole picture of who Jesus is. And so you and I, those of you that are here that, that profess to follow Jesus, that call yourself a disciple of him, he is your king. He is not just your savior. He's your Lord. He's your king. And he's been laying out reasons why. We see it in his teaching. His teaching that there's no one teaches like him. And we see the Sermon on the Mount and the, the amazing authority he has in teaching. And then right after that, he comes and he starts healing. He touches a, a, lepr- a man full of leprosy and he heals him. And we see his authority in the healing. And then he jumps in the boat and says, hey, let's head to this other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he hops in and the storm goes crazy and the disciples wake him and he just calms the storm and shows his authority over nature. And so there's all these things where we're lining up where you and I get to see on this end of the, of the Bible going, okay, here, yeah, he's, okay, man, he's, he's, he's an amazing teacher and he's got authority over healing. That's insane. And he's got a, authority over the nature. And then we get to the spot where he has authority over demons. And so often we go, ah, okay, that's neat, cool, move on. But the very next text that we're going to talk about next week lines up whether or not Jesus has authority over sin. And so I love that Matthew sandwiched this, inspired by God, it sandwiched this right in the middle of all these other things where if I don't want to believe this, how am I going to believe the rest of this about Jesus? And so my, my plea for you is that a couple things. There are so many movies and books and stories about good and evil. I believe that biblically we can find that there are no neutral spirits. There are no neutral things in this world. It's, it's, there, the, the, there are demons and there are angels. There are good and there are evil. In fact, in fact, I think that a lot of us, we view ghosts like, oh, Bren's going to you know, die and become a ghost and haunt a house. If the house was really annoying, maybe I'd want to do that. But really the point is that that's not even the case. That's just a make-believe thing that our, our minds go. Look, there, there, there is, this is going on in the world. 
And if you, you struggle with this, you wrestle with this, I, as uncomfortable as you may be, just sit for a second. Trust me on this because I think that we have something really great to get out of this before we get there. But before we get there, I wanted you to look at Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul. He's, uh, it should be up on the screen for you. He says, for we, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he tells us all this, and what I love is right after this, he says, so because of this, because there are forces that are stronger than you, smarter than you, and, and know way more about what's going on with God and everything else than you, put on your full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. You need him to, to defend. You need him to live and prevail. This world, this war is not just flesh and blood. There's more going on than just flesh and blood. And the problem is, is that we, we sometimes forget that. But then you have texts like 1 John 3, 8, where it says the reason the Son of God came was to undo, to destroy the works of the devil. It's the reason why the Son of, Son of God is here. It's the reason why Jesus came. And so it's, 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 to me, it's obvious that this is real. Now, what do we do with that? Let's look at the text, and hopefully, um, in some discombobulated way, we'll figure out what this means for us. So now this is a quick errand. I, I love that Jesus does this because he's, he's in Capernaum. He just does the, the healing. Everything's awesome. He says, hey, let's get in the boat. And then he does a storm. And he shows up in this, in this, this Gentile area, essentially where he goes, or maybe some outcast Jews are. And he, he does this one thing and then hops back in the boat and heads right back to Capernaum. And so it's like this little errand that Jesus does. And, and it seems weird that he just kind of hops in to do this and then moves back. But let's look at the story. He says, and when he came to the other side, to the, to the country of the, of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried, What have you to do with us, Son of God? I have to pause on that real quickly, because one verse prior, Jesus calms the storm, and you know what the disciple says? Who is this? Who is this that even the winds listen to him? And the first thing these, these demons say is, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? So the disciples at this point are still confused, like, ah, You know, this is insane. The demons were not confused. They looked right at Jesus and said, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? It says, um, O Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from, the, from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out and met Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, there's so much going on in this text. First, first thing I, I want to talk about is, is that the, there's a, the account in Luke 8 and Mark 5 as well. They, they only speak of one demon-possessed person. And I, that doesn't mean that Matthew's wrong, but maybe that they focused on the more prevalent one or, or they focused on that one more so. But there's a couple things in that story that I love too in, in Luke and Mark that we don't get here in Matthew. In Luke and Mark, when the townspeople come out, they see this man who's, they define him a little bit more fierce, that he was nude, that he was naked, and that they had at times shackled him, but they couldn't keep him in prison, that he would break the shackles and break the chains. And it was so bad that no one came around this area anymore. So bad that no one came around this area. But when the townspeople come out, they see him clothed, sane, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I think that's very important for us to understand because it wasn't like Jesus did it and then he went back to normal. It was, it was a drastic difference where these people could not go near them. 
They couldn't subdue them or this person. But yet after Jesus says one word, he sits completely sane at the feet of Jesus. And so what's interesting about this story is, is the word says demon-possessed. We get a couple different words out of that, but essentially oppression um, or possession, both of those can happen in this word, and meaning that you can be controlled or that you can be oppressed by, by demons. He says, what, what have you to do with Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons know the time. They know that there's a time at which is, is no longer theirs, that, that, that Jesus will get to torment them. And they're saying, is it, are you here beforehand? And then they ask what I think is one of the most crazy questions, and I don't think we'll ever understand it. They say, well, if you're going to cast us out, which because the demons knew that Jesus was compassionate. They knew that he couldn't look at this man and see the torment that he was under and say, oh, man, it really sucks to be you. See you later. They knew that he would have compassion on him and therefore that they would not be able to stay in this man. And so the demons are like, okay, well, if you're going to cast us out, send us to these pigs. Now, now, why they went to these pigs is, I don't know. You know, maybe Jesus didn't understand the value of paleo and bacon and he let all those pigs die. I don't know what happened. Like, I'm not quite sure. But, but he sends them into these pigs and the pigs instantly go into the herd and the scholars disagree. They disagree all over about why. And I don't know what we can say for sure, but I'm sure there's a few things that we can know why the pigs. First off, if you think about the demons, they were tormenting this man or these men in, in a graveyard, which in, in essence, in Jewish time, that would have meant they were unclean and no one was allowed to be near them. Also, I think that the demons would, would do the graveyard because then they would, people, they say the Gentiles would be thinking that, oh, these men must be possessed by the spirits of these graves to try and add confusion and fear to this thing. Maybe, maybe the demons wanted to go to the pigs because they knew that the townspeople would just be mad about the lost possessions. Maybe the demons wanted to go into the pigs because Jesus wanted, you, wanted everyone to see what their desire was to do to this man, but they had no power over him in that regard. And so they wanted to kill all the pigs right away. Maybe Jesus just let them go into the pigs because, well, they were unclean. And honestly, as paleo as it was, bacon wasn't a good thing back then. They were unclean animals. You weren't supposed to keep them. And so Jesus was appeasing the, the Jewish religion. I, I don't know why. But what I do know is what's, what's interesting what comes out of that is in this story we see two, two pre- presentations to what happens. So he's, these demonic men, they're, they're, their power, Jesus says, go and they leave. One word and they're gone. And this, this guy is, is completely sane sitting at the foot of Jesus. And, and the, the account in Luke and, and Mark both tell us that the townspeople came out. But what I would assume if you had just seen or experienced that, and a herdsman comes running and says, you will not believe it. The dude that's been in the graveyard for so long, like we had to go find another graveyard because we couldn't bury people here anymore because he's been so crazy. Like that dude is normal. Everything is good to go. And what's, what's, what's stranger is, is all our pigs, 2,000 pigs are, are, are dead in the Sea of Galilee right now. I, my assumption is every single person was like, what? So they came running out. And in an instant, Jesus had unified a city. And so the city comes out in unity. And I, my assumption is they would see Jesus and go, oh my, this is insane. This is amazing. They see this, this guy that they couldn't even subdue, that they were afraid of, that, that their life had been sent about in fear on this guy. And they see him sane and having a conversation and sitting at the foot of Jesus. My assumption is they'd be like, wow, tell me more about who you are, Jesus. Please, please explain yourself to me. How did you do this? What does this mean? But no, that's not what they did. In fact, they were so afraid, tells us they were so afraid that they sent him off. What's interesting, we see over and over and over again biblically, when unholy people come face to face with a holy God, their reaction is always the same. 
fear. Isaiah said, well, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am unworthy to see you. Apostle Peter said, I'm full of sin. Depart from me, Jesus. Anytime anyone sees the holiness, they, they recognize their, their unvalue, their, their need of that holiness and their inability to actually obtain it by themselves. And so maybe that's why these people told him to go away. Maybe they're just like, uh, we don't, it doesn't make sense. It's scary. I don't get it. And, and we're, we're, we're broken. We're messed up. Go away. We aren't even Jews. Like, we knew that we don't have a place at the table with you. Like, go. Or maybe it was just indifference. Maybe they just came out and said, wow, that's neat. That's great. But you just killed 2,000 of our pigs. That's our livelihood. That's our money. Go away, Jesus. And I can't help but think a lot of us deal with him in indifference. It's really neat that God is, is a, a God of miraculous, but we just kind of come at it complacent and indifferent. We see his power in the cross and what he did for us, and we assume that he is powerless in our life. And that he has no miraculous in our life. And I think we view him with indifference. What I love about this is, is in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that the, the man who was possessed, and we don't hear any more about him after this, we don't hear anything other than we can assume he was a Gentile or maybe an outcast Jew. And what's interesting is, is he says, I want to follow you, Jesus. Like, you've, he sees it. I'm freed. I want to follow you. Like, I'm in. The townspeople are like, uh-uh. He's, he's going, I know what I, where I was. I know where I am now, and I'm about you. Let's do this. And Jesus says no, which is interesting because he, he says not to follow him. But I think, he, I think we can understand maybe why he did this errand, too. See, because what he says, and it tells us in Mark, he says, I want you to go in and tell everyone what God has done for you. He says, what God has done for you. And then this man goes in and says what Jesus did of him. He uses those, those words synonymously in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And what also is interesting, in Luke, it tells us that he goes on to the Decapolis, which are the ten largest cities, the Roman or Greek cities, that are surrounded Syria, or in Israel, surrounded there Syria and Jordan and around there. And he goes and starts telling everyone of what he did. He essentially sent out his first evangelist, who was a Gentile, or an outcast Jew to all of the Gentiles, when at time, later on, the news of Jesus would get to. So Jesus intentionally took an errand. I, I like to, to read the story. That he took this errand because he's like, I got someone over here that's going to go do some dirty work for me in the, with the Gentiles, and right now I can't get any of these Jews to do it. In fact, I'm going to need someone else later on to do it. But, but I can't get them to do it, so I'm going to send this guy out now, and I want him to tell everyone about what I did, which is interesting because a lot of the times he tells them, shh, don't tell what I did. Just did that with healing. But here he's like, go tell. Say it everywhere. And so he sends him out to tell everyone about it. And so here we have this story. We have these, this man or these men that are demon-possessed that now are in right mind. They're sent off to, to, to evangelize about Jesus. And we have the town that comes out to experience him and to see what had happened. And they see the, the, the bacon floating. And they're like, oh, man. And, and they, for some reason... Say, go away, be gone, Jesus. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. Out of fear or whatever else it may be. And so that's where we get this text. It's like, okay, well, there's a lot more to talk about in here. But I wanted to, I wanted to move on a, a way to apply this to us today. See, because I think that if we're not careful, first off, we have to realize that this is real. Some of us really struggle with that. We struggle with the idea that, that there's there's demons and angels, and there's all sorts of theology written around it. And honestly, the Bible leaves a lot unsaid, but there's a lot very well said about this. 
and we struggle with this, but I think we need to understand that there is, there is more to this world than flesh and blood. We're all eternal beings. We understand that. We, we, inside of us, we long for more, which is what draws us to Christ, draws us to what he's done for us. Right? And so this is a real thing. But the second thing I want to do, and this is, this is just the way I'm going to apply this, is that there's this text that says in 1 John 4, 4. And now, John was really old when he wrote the gospel, or the, the, the book of John. And so he always used this term, little children. And predominantly, the little children meant just like my little, like it was an endearing turn, I love you. And then at times, he would use it as if in little Christ, or little followers of Jesus. Right here in First John, John 4, 4, he's like, little children, little followers of Jesus, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the Bible over 30 times defines Satan as the deceiver. In fact, in John 8, we get a really interesting story, which I would never want to be on the receiving end of what Jesus was talking to these scribes about. But they're arguing with Jesus about who their father is. And I'm of Abraham, or I'm not. And he's going back, you're not of Abraham. It doesn't really matter. You're not of God. And, and basically they're saying, no, our da- my daddy is Abraham and God. And, and Jesus essentially says, no, your daddy is Satan. So I don't want to ever hear that from him. But he's like, he's like, no, your daddy is Satan. In fact, your father is Satan. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. And so what I wanted to pause on not to add panic into every single one of you saying, look, you're oppressed or, or, or possessed by demons. Not that, hey, if you're not careful, you're going to end up on the side of the Sea of Galilee in a tomb freaking people out. Like, that's not, that's not what I wanted to apply today. What I wanted to apply is the fact that I believe that this, this scripture, that, that First John here, this little children, that we are, we are overcomers, we have that in Christ That means that anything that comes at you in this world, anything, whether it is demonic, whether it is just pain or trouble, whether it's whether it's it's the will of God, like whatever you want to go theologically on this, anything that comes, Christ has overcome. Anything that happens, He is greater than, He is stronger than, He is victorious of over. And so what I wanted to say is though, I think that we can limit that. And hear me out on this. If Satan is, is, if his goal is to deceive, then it would be a simple presumption or to assume that, that, that all of his demons would want us to be deceived as well. And I think that if we're, like for most of us in the church, and most of us aren't going to go crazy on the one pendulum where all we talk about is demonology and angelology and all that stuff. Most of us are probably on the other side where we just, I don't know, it does, I'm uncomfortable with it and so we run from it. And my assumption is, is that we just assume, like, you know what, we're okay. Everything's okay, and it's not out there. But you and I are living with lies. And let me, let me talk about how I think that is. If Satan's goal is to deceive us, I think that you and I, we both, believe two lies. Sin and repentance. They're around those two lies. First off, we believe that the sin that's in our life is not that big a deal. We assume it doesn't really matter, and we got it under control, and we move on, and we forget about the fact of repentance. So I want to define it real quick. Sin is, sin is disobedience or the breach of law, violation of relationship. Um, it's a rebellion against God. Most basic term is it's separation from God. Repentance is a change of mind or a turn from it. It's not just a, I don't want to do this anymore. It's I don't want to do this and I'm turning to God and that's what I want more. It's a turning to something, not a, just a turning away from something. And the reason why I bring this up is, is here's, here's why. I, I think that if we're not careful, I'm not saying we're all going to be oppressed or, or, or possessed by demons, but if we're not careful, the enemy 
Satan is, is winning in our lives because of the lies that we believe. And that lie is specifically that this sin is not that big a deal. Here's why I know. You and I, we all do this. Old self comes to Christ. He, he renews us. We become a new self. But we still have this flesh that has these old desires and this sin at times. And some of us, it's, it's struggle of, of pride or struggle of, un, of unforgiveness or bitterness or lust or porn or whatever it is. And we, we, we battle with it. But at times, you know what the problem is, is some of us believe that it's not that big a deal. You say, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't hate anyone. I'm just not going to forgive that person. You say, I, you know what, I don't struggle with porn, but man, I can't stop lusting at every single individual person I see. Or, you know what, I'm, it's, just a, it's just a little lie. And what we do is we start blaming or minimizing sin. And what I believe is that's an open door for the enemy to continue to deceive us. And let me tell you the lie that he tells you. You struggle with porn, I think I, think I got it under control. Lie. You don't. You're not strong enough to, to, to handle that by yourself. You think, oh, no, you know what, like, my, our marriage, it's okay, we don't need anyone else's help. Lie. The enemy completely lies to you and tells you that, hey, don't ask for help. Hey, don't call this to light. Because then, then people will reject you. And he plays on this reputation among men as opposed to your identity in Christ. And what I believe is, in this regards, where called demonic or not, we begin to be deceived. And we, we have an open door to lies. In fact, James 3, 14 talks about this. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, what I think's happened is although we may not be standing in a graveyard, <laughs> breaking chains, causing everyone not to be there, I think at times we allow the enemy to lie to us and we believe the lie so much so that we don't believe we have to repent. You know, it's funny, as I, there was a pastor, he, he talked about this and he said, he used this analogy, so I'm going to totally steal it because it was awesome. He talked about how, you know how there's some people that have raised lions since they're babies? You know, or tigers? Not bears? Sorry. Um, <laughs> raised lions or tigers? And they've, they've grown up, and they're like, they've been the best thing ever, and then at some point, the lion or the tiger, it snaps, right? And it bites the arm off. And you know what always happens in the interview after that? Every time, you know what happens after the interview? I don't know what happened to little tigger. I don't know why. He just out of nowhere. He's been, he's been the best tiger ever. And he just bit my arm off. That's sin in our life. See, we, we, we name it. We train it. We teach it to sit. Hey, stay back there. Just don't come too far out in the light. And we think we have it under control. When it's just a matter of time, when you're weakest and it's really an inopportune time, where sin's going to bite. It's going to come out and it's going to bite and it's going to affect all of those around you that you love, the ones that you've been protecting from it. And it's going to affect them that much more. When really what we need to do with the sin in our life is develop the same thing that God has, which is a hatred towards what is apart from him. Not, I don't, want to, I don't want to like, oh, I love you, sin, you're great. I need to take it out in the street and shoot it. I need, to, I need to have an absolute hatred and disdain for it, repent and turn to it and turn to the holy God. 
And see, the problem is, is for us, like I said, we're not shackled in chains and going crazy, but we have these spiritual chains in the sense that we believe that we can walk around with unforgiveness or bitterness or lust or porn or drunkenness. All the things the Bible says, no. And he's not saying no because he's some guy going, I'm going to puppeteer you. He's saying no because he knows what he created us for. He knows what we were meant for and he knows where we can be most free and where joy comes from. Jesus' words alone, abide in me. Keep my commands and you will experience a joy that makes no stinking sense. Paraphrased. So this is the point. I think that some of you, you need to repent. And not the kind of like, um, I'm struggling with, and you repent of like all these little things over here while this big one's just kind of looming because you're so afraid of the, the, the issues or the struggle or the consequences that may come out of this. That is an open door. That is a, that is a spot for the deceiver, the enemy to keep lying to you, say, you got it under control. You got it under control. Just stay there. Don't, don't feel that freedom. Look, you've been burned by the church before. Remember that one time you said something and they totally ostracized you? That's going to happen again. Lie, lie, lie. God is not trustworthy. I know he said he's the author and the perfecter. He's the founder and the perfecter, but he's, he's, he's forgotten. He's missing up. He's not figuring out how to perfect. You know what's funny is as I talk about this is every single one of us have something, and I don't say this so that we can beat ourselves up and say, wow, we're useless. God isn't up there going, come on, Bren. Let's go. Tell me this stuff now. Uh, this is, okay, this is the third time. One more time this month, and I'm out. No. He's a loving God. He lavishes grace, more than enough grace on us. You know what's sad to me is some of you believe that you actually have it hidden. Like God's up there going, well, I had no idea you were doing that. H- how did you hide that from me? When really all you're doing is putting a wall between the one person that knows you the best, knows what you need the best, can meet the needs that you need to be met, and can bring you to a freedom that you don't deserve, but he graciously gives us. So my plea, my, my application to this text in a way is Repent. Run from your sin. Stop naming it, teaching it to sit, giving it cool little treats and hoping it stays at bay. Be done with it. Repent of it. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to start believing lies the longer you hold on to it. And anyone that's been following Jesus for a while that struggled with something can tell you it hurts 10 years later. It hurts those around you it hurts that much more. It may hurt today when you, you, when you call it to life, but here's the best thing. Here's the best thing about this is that when I, when I stand before God and I say, you know what, here's something I struggle. I have friends, in my, I have men in my life that I hold accountable to. I wrote a letter this last month to him, like here are the thoughts in my head I'm not seeing right. His response to me, a pastor friend of mine, is don't ever share this with anyone else. So there you go. There's some dirty secret on me, guys. I have a dark spot at times too. And I, I say this stuff, it's out there then, it's in the light. And you know what the best thing is? Is when Satan or the enemy or a demon or whatever it may be wants to come and say, hey, Brent, I know, but you think, I can go, yeah, you know what, I did think that, but I confessed it. You can't hold that over me. You have no power over me because I am surrendered to a Christ who has overcome you. And when you hold on to that, when you won't call it to light and you let it be darkness, it festers. And then when he comes and says, 
yeah, I know you want to serve, but you're only serving because you're trying to pay penance for this. You can't help but go, oh, maybe there's some truth to that. It's a lie. So whether you believe in this or not, Jesus has overcome it. He's faithful in that. You are not meant to carry this. You can be free of it. And you don't have to believe these lies anymore. But to do so, it takes you doing the very thing that you did when you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You believed, you confessed that. It's the same thing again. God, as you, Lord and Savior, I don't want to carry this anymore. I'm done carrying this. And there are going to be consequences upon consequences of some of the stuff that you guys share. I understand that. That happens. But don't let the fear of those consequences poison the promise of your future. We have a peace that makes no sense at all in Christ. I'll surrender to that. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing some more. I'm going to pray for us. But before I do, I guess the question I have for you is, is, is that most likely while I was talking, there's something in your life, and maybe you're right now, you're going, well, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it was just a little lie. I don't know. It probably, it's been so many years, it doesn't really matter. Those are lies. Those are lies. In fact, the, the Bible says at some point that everything's going to be yelled from the rooftops. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to be down. Like, no way, you said that? I'm just kidding. I don't know how that works. But the point is, is that you are not fooling God. He knows it, and he's not looking at you going, Someday I'll love a future version of you when you come. He's saying, no, I will love you today. I love you for who I created you to be. I know who you're going to be, and I'm the one that's going to do that. Now, would you stop running from me, surrender, and repent of whatever is not of me? Stop running to the old self. That self is dead. You are new. You are raised with Christ. Surrender that. Father, thank you for your word. God, even on days like this where uh, we can get so wrapped up in, in different theologies and, and really miss the point, um, God, I pray that you would just, your spirit would do a mighty work in each heart. God, for those in the room that, like, they're not even sure what they believe about you and they hear this and they're like, this is wacky, crazy. God, would you just uh, show them who you are? Would you reveal yourself in a mighty way to them? God, for your, for your, for your children in here, those that have been adopted and can call you Father, those that have been carrying around some darkness, God, would you drag it out into light? Would you help us to, to, to repent of it and to live by your spirit and no longer allow ourselves to believe lies or to be deceived? Now, would you, would you allow us to experience the Christ that has overcome even that? And so, God, for those that, that, that struggle to, to be free, that struggle, that maybe those that are in the room that are just confused, they don't know which way it's up right now. God, maybe there's evil desire in them, selfish ambition, and they need your wisdom. Now, for those of us that, that continually assume it's okay to say we love you but hate others, oh, break us of that, Father. Father, for those of us that continue to say that we, we love our spouses but it's okay for us to continue to look at porn, oh, God, break us of that darkness. And for those of us in the room that continually run to addictions, God, free us from that, Father. God, for those of us in the room that just keep minimizing sin, keep carrying around like a pet, we put it on a leash, just hoping that it never bites our arm off. God, I pray that you would just release us of that. 
Bring us to our knees before your throne, knowing that you are a God not of shame or guilt, but a God of love and grace, a God that receives us as we are, a God that has freed us to live for freedom. May we live in that freedom now, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.